0: Hello and welcome to episode number 156 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode we're going to hear from Ramazan Aras. He's Associate Professor of Social and Cultural Anthropology at Istanbul's Ibn Haldun University and the author of The Wall, The Making and Unmaking of the Turkish-Syrian Border, published by Palgrave Macmillan. The book examines the effect on local communities of the foundation of the Turkey-Syria border after the declaration of the Republic of Turkey in 1923. Previously of course, during the Ottoman era, that border didn't really exist. Local variations of course existed in different territories on the ground, but there was no national border dividing separate national entities. With the introduction of the border in 1923 however, local, largely Kurdish communities suddenly found themselves in completely different states, Turkey and what was at the time French and Syria, Turkey's addition of Hatay province from Syria in 1938 rejigged the borderline somewhat but in essence the contours of the border have stayed consistent ever since. The only difference being that the border has gradually become increasingly securitized and thickened over time with the Turkish authorities gradually exerting more and more control over the border throughout the 20th century. The obvious culmination of that process is Turkey's building of a huge security wall spanning over 800 kilometers across the border with Syria in recent years. We talk about the effects of all that in the interview but before we start just a reminder here that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com Also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books pre-orders and eBooks. also if you'd rather read these interviews and listen to them then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published you also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome, but so long as you pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion there are no prior commitments or strings attached you'll be free to sign off whenever you want and now on to our conversation with Ramazan Aras. He was born and grew up in Nusaybin in Mardin province, separated by the border from the larger city of Qamishli in Syria. Qamishli is currently controlled by the US-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, led basically by the Kurdish YPG or People's Protection Units. Obviously that state of affairs developed relatively recently and was certainly not the case when Ramazan Aras was growing up. So I started by asking him to talk about his own background and how his experiences growing up in Nusaibin led to his later scholarly work.
1: My interest in border and border studies actually goes back to my childhood memories. When I look at my life's history, I was too much impressed and influenced by the narratives and stories of border that were told to me by elders and my, my parents to me when I was growing young in the 19, late 80s and, and early 1990s. And uh, these memories of the borders and stories of the borders and, and border crossings of the family members and relatives you know were lingering in my mind you know when I was pursuing a career in sociology and then in history and then in anthropology but the final phase of this, the story of my relationship with this research subject, I think, goes back to the starting point in my academic career when I started to work at mardin Artuk University, which is located in the border city of Mardin in the Syrian, uh, on the Syrian border. And I think that was the moment in, in 2010, and it was the moment when actually I, I, I started to more seriously think about and ethnographic research sociologically and anthropologically on the border. And that was the moment, I would say, in, in early 2010 that actually pushed me to that direction. And I would say these stories and memories of the borders that were inscribed onto my mind, you know, by my parents and other elders within the family setting dragged me also professionally and academically into that research subject Uh, and, and and that was the moment when i was starting to think sociologically and anthropologically about the whole phenomenon of the you know the border you know the turkey syrian border and the history of the border and how actually it has affected, you know, and deeply contracted, you know, the memories and the histories of the region. So that was the moment, uh, 2010, I, I will say, that actually pushed me into that direction. Uh, I wanted to really uh, look at, you know, how this... Phenomenon, you know, uh, has been too much, you know, neglected actually in the larger context by the Turkish academia, I would say. But when I start to look at the literature, when I start to read the literature, you know, uh, I found that, you know, actually that that there is a huge gap within the literature on the on the border and border studies actually in Turkey, in spite of the fact that the construction of the Turkish political borders have resulted on diverse economic political cultural social effects you know and and, and consequences you know at both subjective and collective level so it was for me as a young academician it was very surprising actually to see that gap in the literature and the indifference of the Turkish academia in that sense.
0: So the research you really go into a lot of detail finding personal testimonies from people in the region Stories of elders relating how throughout the, the 20th century, really, the border changed. First of all, it was imposed in 1923 and that had obviously a huge effect. But then it changed gradually and basically hardened throughout the course of the subsequent decades. And you talk about how that affected people on the ground. I just wonder if we could go back to the establishment of the border with the founding of the Republic of Turkey in 1923, because um, a lot of your research is focused in Nusaybin, which is a border town, as you say, in Mardin, border province on the border with Syria. And obviously, as a result of the, the declaration of the border, essentially, Nusaibin was was turned into this border town, which obviously it wasn't really before. And obviously it had profound effects on many local people because they had family, tribal, religious, ethnic ties with people on the other side of the border. And you talk about all that in the book. Could you just talk a bit briefly about the initial effects of the border going up in 1923?
1: First of all, we have to explain the reality that that when you look at the the history of uh, turkish borders due to the huge and immense and traumatic impacts of the borders the turkish academia has largely you know um, ignored you know those effects of the borders political borders and and as you know you know the, the foundation of the turkish nation state as a monolithic entity based on Uh, Turkish identity, Turkish history, uh, Turkish language, and Turkish culture was kind of framed within the the, the foundation of the the national borders. When we go back to 1923, which is the date where uh, the Turkish determination of the Turkish-Syrian border was made by the Turkish authorities of the time and uh, the European colonial powers, it was, in in sociological, anthropological senses, was not really a breaking point because it was uh, something that was done between the bureaucrats, between the politicians and authorities. So for the local people, that wasn't something really meaningful because of the fact that they were not that much, you know, involved or informed or or aware of the fact that that decision has been made on their own territories. So in that context, we will say that 1923 can be seen uh, officially as a declaration of that rupture, But in practice ethnographically, when you look at the, the site, when you look at the community, we don't see really an influence. The influence and the impact or the foundation of the political bo- Turkish-Syrian border will start to felt by the local people through the decays. So in in that context, after the declaration, uh, the, the agreement and declaration of the, the, the official boundaries between the Turkish authorities and, and, and the, the, the French colonial power in the context of the Turkish-Syrian border, Local people continued, actually, to live their lives. You know, the agreement was made by the powers, but the local people were not really touched by this decision at that moment. So they continued their lifestyle, of course. Economic, you know, transactions, cultural transactions. You know, for the local people, in their cartographic imagination, that border was not existing until the concrete apparatuses that were inflicted on the territory, you know, later, particularly in the 1950s.
0: And you talk in the book about how in the first years, actually, after the border officially went up in 1923, and in the subsequent couple of decades, it was actually pretty porous. And there were people making very casual trips across that border, People going into Syria very casually to, you know, buy things from the market and then going back across the border into Turkey. And it was a very porous, almost non-existent border, despite officially obviously existing. But as you mentioned, that border started to get harder in the 1950s. Uh, You talk about how locals referred to landmines that started to get put down, barbed wire fences started to to go up and mark the border from the 1950s and that obviously had a big effect on people's mobility. Why did that start to happen and what were the effects of that hardening?
1: Okay, I think after the, the, the declaration of the political borders, The Turkish state was not having that much power, actually, in foundation and and, and thickening of its territorial borders as well. And, And on the other hand, I will say for the local people who are living in the borderlands, the memory and the history of the region was perceived and understood in a completely different way. So on the one hand, while the Turkish nation state was trying to create a new nation on a certain territory within determined borders, the local people uh, and the Kurdish people in this case were completely having a, a, a different cartographic imagination about who they are and where they are living. So I will say that While the Turkish nation state was putting a huge labor on the foundation of a new identity, a new state based on a new memory, a new history, on a new determined territory, the local people were having this centuries-old past where religious ties, tribal ties, and ethnic ties were operating. And that is why... The declaration of the wall didn't affect the, the mobility patterns of the local people in the region. So they they were completely unaware of what decision has been made uh, and what was waiting for them in the near future. And that is why when you look at the life stories and when when you look at the histories of the region, you know, you will see that the cultural, economic, educational, political, and all other ties within the community continued, you know, so there wasn't an interruption in that sense, I will say. In the case of the Turkish-Syrian border, we see the same story. You know, there is a continuity of these relationships. I will say that local people have completely different narrative of who they are and, and sense of belonging to the region. ...comparing to what Turkish nation state was trying to impose on them by using diverse apparatuses like education, the army, etc. And, and that is why when we come to the 1950s, they pushed Turkish nation state authorities to take some precautions you know, on the borders. And and the first precaution, I think, was, as I said, barbed wire. They started to implement barbed wire in order to declare physically also and militarily also that the border exists here, you know. And that is why this is the the second encounter of the local people with the physical instrument or apparatus that is implemented by the state in at that moment. And, of course... In addition to barbed wire, we see also the implementation of the landmines. So gradually, step by step, the Turkish state authorities are starting to thickening the, the territorial boundaries of Turkish nation state. And of course there are diverse reasons behind this. One reason is, of course, you know, economic. The fact that the the Turkish nation state was trying to nationalize the Turkish economy and they were trying to prevent outsider, you know, infiltration into the Turkish economy, like unrecorded transactions and, and, you know, the entrance of the customs uh, and other, you know, products. And so one of the reasons was, the economic reason to control the economic transactions within the nation-state borders. And the second one, I will say it is political, is is political in, in, in relation to the, the Kurdish question in the region, you know, because in, in this period, we see the revival of the Kurdish Nationalist Movement, which was led by the Mullah Mustafa Barzani in Iraq. The, the, the Kurdish Nationalist Movement had a lot of connections with the Turkey, with the Syria, and, and with Iran as well, you know, through the madrasa education system and through other tribal and religious networks. So, the, the other reason, the, the other political reason for taking certain precautions and and trying to eliminate, you know, this mobility patterns on the border was to cut ties between the, the Kurdish population in Turkey and the Kurdish population in Syria and then in Iraq as well. So that was another reason and maybe the third important reason behind this move by the Turkish state can be related to the the Cold War politics in that region. You know, in the 1950s, when you look at the Cold War era, you know, the Soviets on the other one side and the the, the American politics on the other side, and Turkey is tending to have more relationships and collaborations with the the American power. But on the other hand, the the Syrian government, the, the Syrian regime of the time, having more, you know, empathy for, for the Soviets. So in that context, I will say that Turkish-Syrian bo- political uh, border become one of the uh, a battleground or a contact zone between these two political powers of the Cold War era as well, you know, the Soviets and the American power. So that is also another dimension. with the, With the 1950s, with the implementation of barbed wires and then gradually landmines, you know, we will say that this is, how the catastrophe actually started being felt by the local people in that period. And when we look at the life stories and narratives of the local people, the implementation of the landmines by the Turkish state and barbars are the starting of of the trauma and the catastrophe within the local community. Because with this implementation of this military apparatuses, it is not easy anymore for the local people to continue and practice their centuries-old relationships with each other. So this is the time that we can talk about the partition, let's say, within the local community, between the families, within the tribes, with within the religious communities in the region. And that is why this state apparatus, you know, barbed wires and landmines can be evaluated as a huge rupture, as a breaking point in the history of Turkish-Syrian border.
0: So we're talking about this gradual process of control and exertion of control throughout the 20th century. Stringent measures applied step by step. And the logical conclusion of that, I suppose you could say, is the, the border wall that's uh, been built in recent years. But before we get on to the building of that wall, let's talk about the uh, emergence of the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. And obviously this emerged in the 70s, it declared this insurgency in the 80s. And one of the goals of the, the PKK was to effectively unite Kurds in four different countries Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, where the, these communities were divided by the borders between those countries. How did the uh, Turkish authorities respond to, to that challenge, and how did it change? the experiences of local people living along the border, how did perhaps the the, the Turkish state uh, exert even more control over these border areas that over the previous decades it had already been gradually increasing control over?
1: The quest for the Turkish state authorities to control the border, as I said, started in the 1950s with the implementation of barbed wire and landmines but along with this gradually the Turkish state authorities started to implement you know other state apparatuses like watch towers and then gendarmerie stations along with sending you know a lot of soldiers to make patrols along the border so uh, starting from the border markers and then the barbed wires in the 50s and then in the 50s landmines and then watch towers and then gendarmerie stations and soldiers and then the border gates. There is a a continuation of the thickening of the border and and this controlling mechanisms were not only implemented to to barricade the outside influences, but of course it was also for the policies of homogenizing the population that is remaining within the Turkish territory as well. So, So as a result of this imagined Turkish community, Political borders and implementation of the militaristic, you know, apparatuses on the political borders were carried out to both prevent the, the ideological, religious, or other infiltrations that are coming from the outside of the boundaries of the Turkish state. The same precautions were taken for also to homogenize the population around this imagined Turkish ethnicity, Turkish identity by the Turkish authorities. So, this engineering project, let's say, was threatened by the, the rise of the, the, the Kurdish nationalist movements in the early 60s and then 70s and early 80s, of course. As I said earlier, the Kurdish nationalist movement in Iraq, which was led by Mullah Mustafa Barzani, had ties with diverse institutions and groups and communities in the Turkish side. And that was seen by the Turkish authorities, of course. So one of the reasons behind this thickening measures, of course, and, and, and militaristic measures on the border was to barricade this ideological networks between the Kurds living in Turkey and the Kurds living in Syria and Iraq as well. So, with the rise of the Kurdish nationalist and leftist movements, let's say, in the 70s and, and early 80s, which later led by the emergence of the PKK, of course, resulted in in an, another fear, let's say, in the in the political in the Turkish political ground, let's say, the PKK was as a marxist maoist movement with this separatist agenda and of course you know residing in the on the other side in the Syrian side with the support of the different powers and, and the regime of the time in Syria of course has kind of faded you know this this fear of the turkish nation state about this separatist, you know, a Kurdish nationalist movement. So I will say that the emergence of the PKK made a huge contribution in this Turkish state policies of the thickening state. So of course, with the infiltration of the PKK, you know, forces and guerrillas and terrorists, let's say, the Turkish state uh, started to thicken the border, turkish Syrian border, by implementing more and more landmines. So with this Landmines and extra uh, military, you know, precautions, expanding the number of the soldiers and, and, and gendarmerie stations, so the, the, the Turkish-Syrian border becomes a more and more a militaristic, you know, boundary. And of course, for the local people, the trauma becomes unbearable due to an, an increased, you know, level of the military precautions on the border. So, the nineteen fifties was the first. A traumatic rupture in the history of the turkish syrian border for the local people. But on the other hand, with the emergence of the PKK, I will say uh, the trauma was doubled. And of course, in, in the 70s and 80s, due to highly increased military precautions on the border, it was very hard and difficult for for local people to communicate with each other anymore. So when you look at the life stories and narratives of the local people, you know, this is what they talk uh, about, you know, that actually before the PKK, before the emergence of the PKK in the region, they were somehow continuing their diverse relations with the other through smuggling and through the smugglers and making you know making certain economic and profit based collaborations with the soldiers and other military officers in the region so there were the local people were applying diverse resistance and adaptation and resilience you know measures and, and, and strategies and tactics let's say to deal with these precautions you know but in spite of all these measures the local people somehow and some way were making certain briefs and, and dealing with these measures in different ways, you know. Sometimes paying certain fees and, and money and bribe and were collaborating with the officials, you know. But with the PKK, I would say that uh, relations with between communities uh, who are partitioned by the border you know, on both sides dramatically, you know, changed and, and declined, with the extra and very violent measures that were taken by the Turkish state authorities, particularly in the 1980s and then in the 1990s. These precautions resulted in in deaths and loss of thousands of people, uh, which has a huge impact, not only the Kurdish community who is residing on the border, but also in the larger context in the whole Kurdish community in both sides, in Syria and Turkey as well
0: and now let's talk about this building of of the security wall this wall goes along almost the entire length of the turkey syria border over 800 kilometers long and it's been built in the last few years been completed in the last few years but before then that border was actually fairly porous with in the early years of the syrian civil war a lot of people were crossing obviously that was the border that refugees came through And it was fairly easy to cross in and out of Syria during those early years. And then gradually, as the security situation deteriorated in Turkey and migration obviously became a political problem, there was more of an impetus, I think, for the Turkish authorities to try and exert this control. And the way that they've done it is to build this massive, this high-tech border wall. One of the other reasons, of course, for building the wall was that it started to be constructed once the uh, peace process with the PKK collapsed and the Kurdish forces, the Syrian Kurdish forces in northern Syria started to gain momentum. And that obviously triggered a kind of security reaction in Turkey. And uh, it's possible to argue that 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 border was uh, accelerated, that the construction of it was beefed up uh, as a result of the kind of securitization of Turkey's foreign policy in Syria and also its internal policy related to uh, the Kurdish issue. There's also a border war going up on the border with Iran. The reason behind uh, the Iran border is more explicitly to prevent irregular migration. And particularly, there's a, a kind of acceleration of that work with the recent fears about migration from Afghanistan. But uh, obviously, we're talking about the Syrian war here. Just talk about about the effect of that new security war, because, you know, we've been talking about how the border over the course of the 20th century became thicker and thicker and more and more heavy-duty measures were taken by Turkey to exert control over the border. But this is something else entirely. You know, this is a massive wall, unprecedented along that border. The idea of crossing that border now or even smuggling things across it is very, very difficult to even imagine. So it's completely changed the reality for people on the ground there. You went down there in in 2019, I think, when when the wall was being built and you spoke to a lot of locals. I gather that there was some sort of small protests from locals as the wall was being built, but there wasn't a huge amount of noise about this wall getting built. It was almost being done out of the public eye. So, just talk about the the effects of uh, of this new border wall.
1: Yes. Before going into that direction, I think we I need to state that the whole process of construction of the Turkish Syrian border actually can be seen as a as a fencing and bowling mechanism in the eyes and mentality of the Turkish nation state. Right? So uh, bowling as a policy uh, and, and, and fencing as a policy actually started in the early 1950s, uh, I will say. And and when you look at the Turkish state discourses. This bowling and fencing mechanism started actually from the beginning. You know, this us and them dichotomy was one of the main foundation of the Turkish nationalistic policies from the beginning. The, the mentality and the, the, the state discourses that we that we observed as a similarity until the nineteen uh, early early 2000s, till the arrival of the AK Party, because AK Party in that sense can be seen as a rupture in this Turkish State narrative about voling and fasting. Very interestingly, our party has added has a, has a differentiation between its discourses. And previous discourses because of the fact that as a conservative Islamist political body, they they were, you know, having this uh, idea of the ummah to to develop relationships with all Muslim countries and all neighbors, you know. And when you look at the the, the state discourses during the rule of the AK party, Ahmed Davutoglu was the minister. uh, And uh, we see uh, this. A party-led policy is to have zero problems with the neighbors, and very interestingly, when you look at the history of Turkey-Syrian border, you know this moment in in their history can be seen as a breaking point because of the fact that the Turkish government of the time was talking about lifting the you know the borders and and the clearance of the landmines and lifting the the borders between both countries you know and even when you when if you look at the history of that period uh, in the turkish media and other uh, you know networks in the state discourses of the time there was a tendency to lift this boundaries and allow you know the transactions and and mobility of the pe- local people more easily with each other. But very interestingly, after with the eruption of the Syrian war, we will observe how this narrative and discourse within the A party government also start to shift gradually. And we see the same people uh, and and politicians who were talking about erasure of the political borders and development of the more human relationship with, with the other side of the border, they also start to mumble about fortification of fences and walls as well. So th- the first attempt actually was made in 2013 by the uh, AK Party government of the time. And even when you look at the news and official discourses in that period, there is no consensus even among the AK Party politicians of the time. You know, Some of them are declaring such such a plan, and some of the others are completely disagreeing with such statements. So you, there is a, a confusion within the mentality of the AK Party politicians of the time as well, you know, and, and they don't know what actually, how to do manage and how to deal with the whole process of huge, you know, wave of the refugees and Syrians, and, and they flow into the Turkish territories. The, the AK Party politicians who was having this idea of the Ummah uh, and the, the policy is to develop more relationships with all neighbors and other Muslim countries, uh, suddenly with the eruption of the Syrian war, start to think about erection of a wall, a security wall on the border. So this idea, the idea of the security wall, in that sense can be seen a huge contradiction for the ideological foundation of the AK party itself, of course. And, and, and I think this contradiction, contradiction still continues today. And of course, the actual initiative for the construction of the high-tech security wall started in 2016, actually, by the Turkish government by the apartheid government. And of course, the wall was completed, the construction of the wall, the fortification of the wall was completed in, in two, three years, you know. And when you look at the the wall itself, you know, which is supported by high-tech technology, you know, the, the watchtowers uh, are made of like a steel and, and high-tech, you know, supportive material. And, and the wall, the concrete wall itself has a is, is three meter high and, and plus there are fences barbed wires uh, on the top, which is one meter. So with with addition to barbed wire, it has like a four meters height. And after the completion of the war, of course, uh, the, the Turkish security wall on the Turkish-Syrian border is counted as the third large, uh, the world's Third, you know, largest, uh, longest, you know, wall in the world, you know, after the Chinese wall and uh, and uh, Mexican American security fences as well. It is very interesting, you know, to see that the, the fortification of the Turkish security wall along the Syrian border uh, didn't, you know, have that much reaction by the public, which is ironic and which is interesting, I, I think, you know, sociologically. When you uh, think about why the media is silent about this, why the public is too much silent about this, you know, even when you when you look at the the pro Kurdish party and and the Kurdish politicians, even were not that much active in their involvement with the, the in in the process of uh, security wall. I think so. I think this is a very interesting point that I couldn't actually explain uh, in during my analysis about the security mode, but but of course i would say that it is too much related to political conditions in Turkey, you know, and how uh, such a vo- how such a security wall actually was not that much reacted by the public in that sense. And very interestingly, even today, due to the security reasons, due to the ongoing war in Syria, and due to the fact that the, the Turkey security wall actually prevented the infiltration of the terrorists and, 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 and like uh, ISIS and other groups was maybe one of the reasons for the silence of the public to the foundation and the construction of such a security wall. But overall, even today, I would say the majority of the Turkish community do not know about such existence really.
0: Just to conclude, what we're talking about here is a real shift that you actually talk about in the book of the world really. This small part of, this small corner of the world, the Turkey-Syria border, and how that's been beefed up uh, in recent years. That's a small part of a much bigger sort of global trend because, you know, it's possible to trace an arc from the end of the Cold War when all kinds of uh, hopes were starting to be expressed about globalization and that ending up in a borderless world, the erasure essentially of political borders, economic borders. And gradually the idea was that uh, the nation state would just kind of disappear in a liberal globalized world. Obviously, that has not uh, come true, as everybody's starting to realise. In the last few years, you've seen a real beefing up of borders all over the place. People uh, expressing fears of migration and uh, an increased panic about not having control over what's going on in the country. and. Uh, it's possible really to, to trace what's happened on the Turkey-Syria border as part of that bigger process, the collapse of those kind of liberal hopes in favour of something much harder and the, quote, walls going up, not just here, but across the world. So just talk about uh, the Turkey-Syria border as part of that much bigger global story, that bigger global arch that we can possibly trace
1: when we look at the the history of walls you know the security walls you know it is an it's not it is not a new phenomenon in that sense but the idea that that with the globalization and with the you know neoliberal you know, policies you know the world is going to change the world is changing and then the idea of european union and the the, the erasure of the borders you know the the, the 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 fall of the you know berlin wall and and the erasure of other you know national borders within the eu and this integration policies in certain ways you know was giving a certain hopes and and, and a new idea that the world is moving towards such direction. But of course, with the recent political crisis in the Middle East and in other parts of the world, uh, in Latin America and other parts of the world, you know, this the conditions of the inequality within different communities in different parts of the world and the ongoing wars and conflicts, you know, resulted a huge wave of migrants and refugees in different parts of the world. And this deteriorating, you know, economic conditions, you know, have in Africa and other parts of the world, of course, have facilitated and fastened this waves of migration and and, and move of the refugees in different parts of the world. So in the case of the Syria, you know, as we see, we we see the similar patterns of the mobility of of migrants and refugees, not only the Syrian refugees, but refugees and migrants from other parts of the world who see actually Turkey as a breach as a station to move forward to the EU territories. And this is the the, the point, you know, where we are observing the new policies of fencing policies of the voting in different parts of the world, you know, and I think this is, a new era in, in in the history of the political borders in general globally and we see that that you know what was presumed actually by um, the impacts of the globalization and neoliberal policy is that actually this dream of the borderless world is not uh, going to come true, actually. And very interestingly, as a part of this narrative, I would say that the construction of the Turkish security wall was not really that much reacted by the EU uh, countries as well. And I think this is in this bowling policies and processes, that there are certain negotiations within the political powers in the current era as well because of the fact that, you know, what Turkey actually is, through its bowling policies on the eastern and southern borders, you know, Turkey is actually a taking measure that will initially affect the security of the EU countries as well. So that is why, Although it is not uttered you know, openly, the consent also was given by the EU countries as well for the foundation of the Turkish security border in that sense as well. And of course, in today's world, we see you know, the rise of the fences around the uh, European Union countries as well. And even within the Eastern European Union countries uh, itself, you know, we see the making of the fences and the rise of the, the fortification of the fences between these countries as well. So the world is moving into that direction, it seems. On the other hand, the security walls just as concrete architectural designs are also an intervention to the ecosystem and the biodiversity you know because it is not only affecting the lives of the human it is affecting also the lives of the other you know living you know creatures the animals in the nature as well so and and this is i think something that is completely ignored in in the discussion uh, and in the analysis of the security wall as well. When you think about the Turkish-Syrian security wall, for instance, you know, it is a complete intervention that actually deeply influences the lives of the, you know, uh, you know animals in the nature as well, you know, the, the mobility patterns that are existing in the ecosystem as well. So, this negative results of the security walls, you know, on on, on the nature also, I think in the near future needs to be um, explored and investigated by young researchers, you know, and how actually the security wall results in traumatic impacts, not only the lives of the humans, but also in the lives of biodiversity, in the lives of the animals as well.
0: That was Ramazan Aras. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 156. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, 3 €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it on whatever podcast platform you use, follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, before I go, let me just remind you once again to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter put together by the journalist Diego the cupolo, a package bringing together all major developments in turkey over the past seven days links to interesting articles and some excellent puns just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening